The Antifada is more than a podcast. It's a specter haunting the globe. It is the synthesis of the two most frightening things for the cheerleaders of this reactionary hellworld. One ravaged by the unbounded savagery of capital and its states. Antifa super soldiers and intifada. Bash the fashion of global uprising. Be prepared to enter the Antifada mindset. We are broadcasting not live from Leftist Fest headquarters, about a half hour walk away from the gentrification ravaged Gowanus Canal in the coastal elite bubble of America, downtown Brooklyn, USA. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. And we have a producer here, Andy. Say hello. Hey, AP Andy here. All right. And we are here with our guest, Natasha Leonard, who is awesome and is going to introduce herself a bit. Hi, everyone. Yep. Uh, happy to be here. I'm Natasha Leonard. I am a writer living here in Brooklyn, obviously born in Britain. Um, right now, these days, my precarity involves being a columnist for The Intercept. Um, I've written for The New York Times, The Nation, and my focus falls very much within the left is best framework. Hell yeah. Uh, critiques of power from the left um, and politics and philosophies of violence, which we're going to talk today. We sure as hell are. Yeah. So uh, we've known Natasha for a while, haven't we, babe? Yeah, Natasha, I think we met around, what, Occupy Wall Street days? Yeah, definitely. Got involved in some trouble back then all together <laughs> and have been friends ever since. That's right. It's funny how, uh, how large the left feels like in New York sometimes, you know, when you're at a giant demonstration. But then it's really funny in this huge city how small it feels sometimes, too. You know, the fact that we run into each other all the time at these little events. It's maybe like a core group of... Yeah, maybe a hundred people that are our comrades and friends, but uh, we've kept close over the years, which is great. It is great. And I, you know, there are these Venn diagrams, I think, of leftist groups and networks and friendships in the city. But I also think partly the sense of something being very large, there can be a little bit of a, a shock when you walk outside of a protest that seems massive, go a few blocks away and the rest of the city is carrying on as normal. Uh, so, you know, that is our, our challenge of these times, to not overestimate ourselves, but not underestimate ourselves. Yeah, totally. Well said. Um, I'm very excited. We're going to be spending some time together on Fire Island next weekend. Hell yeah, sure we're bougie. <laughs> I mean, hey. we're champagne socialists, all right? We want this for everybody. I'm pretty sure when we're on Fire Island, we're going to be Oyster and Bloody Mary socialists. Uh, mm. but... I'm a rosé socialist. Well, I'm actually a rosé anarchist in the summer. Um, so, you know, guys, get ready for that. But in the, <laughs> nice. in the winter, you become a gin and tonic uh, tanky? Uh, more, <laughs> uh, no, more of a, a, a whiskey hermit, I would say. Oh, <laughs> nice. Hermitism, that's a new <laughs> left movement. We have a question we'd like to ask all our guests here at the Antifada, and that question is, babe? This one's a little different. Uh, a social and political institution, we're going to talk about violence today, that is completely untouched by... Any sorts of personal violence and things like, I don't know, civil wars and beheadings and uh, imprisonment and all that stuff. Um, an institution that's not involved in structural violence like peasant expropriation, rentierism and global imperialism. Uh, we want to ask you a question about just an average family, you know, one like yours and mine, uh, one that's always worked hard to make a, the world a kinder and gentler place. Uh, that has always cared about racial justice, political rights, social equality, whether at home in Great Britain or in the Americas, Africa or India. Um, so, Natasha, as you might have noticed this weekend, millions of people across the globe uh, have had the pleasure to see, you know, in all of its pomp and glory, 
And uh, amid the swooning of the running dog ideological state apparatus of the bourgeois media, probably the most woke of all romantic unions, that of a sallow and callow ginger fail son. I think his name is Prince Harvey of Tottenham, his (laughs) name is. And uh, I guess he has this American bride who's the first African-American royal uh, and the newly announced uh, anointed princess. I believe her name's what, Megan... Megan McArdle. Yeah. Megan McArdle. And I think that she's definitely going to use her new benign power as the sixth in line to become the hereditary CEO of Great Britain to immediately end mass incarceration, economic inequality, and structural violence against fellow POC in her birthland of the United States of America, which, by the way, totally didn't come into creation because we fought a goddamn revolution to throw those limey fucks of the British aristocracy out of the fucking colonies for goddamn fucking freedom, in large part, so we didn't have to kowtow to some jumped-up, inbred parasitic fucking twats in this land of the fucking free and the home of the fucking brave god damn it so uh the questions uh how about that royal wedding uh i too have really no no strong feelings about the uh, royal family no uh, strong feelings like here Sean. no strong feelings um yeah i mean god what that was a that was a horror show uh so obviously growing up in england i'm very much used to this you know empty vessel of british nationalism that's covered in the pomp and ceremony and the pretense that just because there's no elected power that they're at the very worst superfluous but obviously it's way worse than that like this is a really really dangerous human embodiment of like the keep calm and carry on right colonial british spirit um which has always like enabled and perpetuated immense amounts of violence and you know i grew up uh i was about nine or i think about 10 when princess diana died Mm. and like that was just the people's 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 princess Princess. and it was just it was abject madness you had people screeching and weeping on the street um and i'm you know and every time there was the the queen's jubilee or something like that you'd have union jacks in the streets and crying grandmas and and you know, i'm used to that shit and i'm used to how awful that is and the pernicious fucking role that plays in you know at the same time uh, austerity britain is ripping apart the nhs Brexit, obviously. Brexit, obviously. And even before that, the kind of tendency towards smashing social welfare, the kind of brutality towards uh, the working classes and young people of colour that inevitably led to the riotous outbursts of 2011 that were all too quickly swept away by the proper middle classes with brooms. And, you know, the royal family very much is like, that it, it is the er symbol of that kind of process. And I'm used to that. I'm used to that shit. What is new and is all the worst is that you literally now have the guise and pretense that we've got feminism and anti-racism involved in that uh, violence and that neo-colonial or endless line of colonial projects and power and inherited power. And you know, the feminism though started with Thatcher, right? Who was a, a very very strong and uh, really illustrious feminist figure, not only in Britain, but all over the world as prime minister, right? I yeah, mean, she, she just smashed right that glass <laughs> You know, and it's all this funny thing when people talk about getting a woman on, on the money, getting a woman on the dollar. It's like, yeah, so powerful. You know, I was felt it felt really empowered when I looked at Queen Elizabeth's face on my 20 quid <laughs> note. That, my friend, that's that's true equality. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, uh, I, I'm sure you guys saw all over the tweets and stuff that there was a... Um, 
the head of the Episcopalian Church did a, a reading at the Boo. wedding. And he was, and you know, he's a, he's a black pastor and it was very like of that tradition. And people were really moved that in, you know, Bloody Windsor Castle, uh, you've got a guy referencing Martin Luther King and the idea of equality at the union of a woman who is a Hollywood actress for one, who went to a private Catholic school and a young boy who was born into unchallenged heritage of abject power, all the while the cash-strapped taxpayer is giving into a system that, that was willing to pay out £48 million for this absurd event. Jesus Christ. And smile and wave flags throughout it. Um, Holy so shit, yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, it's that much money. It was like the most <sighs> expensive ever. Most of it going into security, which also speaks to how like fearful they are that someone might actually not like it. And obviously the same with the, Lo- the London Olympics and any sort of um, nationalistic uh, performative nonsense. You know, security forces and the police cleared out homeless people on the uh, procession route for months in advance. Uh, the other part of what happens that is not tweeted about within the joy of this, you know, glorious feminist anti-racist wedding is that obviously police and security forces for the weeks are running up to this procession, as was the same with the London Olympics, is the removal and ejection of homeless people from the area, lest there be a, a smudge and a smear of social realities during this um abject violent performance but yeah how about that dress there she, she, she looked she looked baby you know honestly this is gonna sound really arrogant and craven but my first thought upon seeing it was mine was better yours was better <laughs> like you really way better that's way. that's a hundred thousand pound dress really it's so boring it was it's boring. just plain i it's saw like a disgusting a headline, plain white uh, dress i saw a gross headline today in the times that said uh it wasn't a princess's dress it was a people's dress. Uh, they I mean, that's what I went made to the it supermarket. more plain <laughs> yeah then why was it so expensive go, go to yeah, where's Mike? <laughs> it was Givenchy. it was know? it was a woman designer so it was like there you uh, go. It was feminism like, it was like zoolander you know derelict Oh, man. Anybody derelict my balls? I mean, all I could think of was like, God, I feel like our wedding was a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it didn't look very fun. I wasn't jealous to not be invited. No, well, probably really no wasn't. Satan at the real wedding. No Satan or Satan. Um, also, <laughs> um, the, the, also to speak to like the, the hashtag resistance, right? Lauren Duca, and I mean her no ill, perfectly sweet girl. I Bless presume. her heart. Bless her liberal heart. Um, <laughs> you know, she, she, she tweeted something out like, Take that, Donald Trump. What? <laughs> no, <laughs> real what? royal wedding and showed the kind of fullness of the procession route and how many people were there compared oh, to yeah. the really empty I saw that. That was Laura Duca? Yeah, and I'm like, oh, yes, great, sweetie. Hashtag resistance. The royal wedding with a woman of color got more attendees than Trump's inauguration. The revolution is nigh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that really kind of epitomizes my issue with this royal wedding. Well, well, that's some pretty strong opinions. I, uh, that, I wasn't uh, expecting that from my for the, my intro question. Yeah. I thought it was going to be more gentle, that's your a, response. That's a very good segue, though, into our next question, which we like to ask all of our guests here at the Antifada. The real question, actually. That, okay, so this is the real question, and that is, Natasha, how pure is your hate today? Oh, yeah, how pure can hate be with a mild hangover? <laughs> I mean, it can depend. Uh, I would say we're on a we're on a seventy percent today. But that's, that's not that, bad. I not mean, bad. I think that's that's to do with a you know slightly C. It's a solid C. You know, it's a solid C mark. It uh, passes, guys. Yeah. Yeah, it's good enough for us. We great d- inflation. <laughs> okay, fine. You'll get a gentleman's uh, B, gentlewoman's B for that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, um. I thought we would start our serious discussion by letting you introduce your book a little bit. There's a book coming out that you are writing yourself. 
Uh, me with others, actually. So this book... You're so humble. So No, but it's true. Um, I So uh, a book is coming out with uh, the lovely City Lights publishers in August. Um, and it's called Violence, colon, Humans in Dark Times. Um, and We're it, feeling that. Violence, capital V. And actually, it isn't, it isn't just my book. It's co-authored with a political philosopher, also from England, called... Uh, he's actually from Wales. Ooh, Ooh you, um, you just lost our whole Wales audience. Oh, sorry, uh, sorry. Welsh sorry. nationalists everywhere are just going to start uh, boycotting the show. Sorry, yeah, go on. Sorry, gonna, you guys are going to get a sweep of angry letters for that one. Yeah, well, now we've arrived when we're also getting angry tweets from Donut Twitter. Calling you a racist. <laughs> you don't we'll get there. The royal wedding. We'll, we'll get there because we're at what 130 patrons, so only 53 more, and Acid Kitchen comes out. Oh yeah. So maybe the next big uh, reward could be we get to the point where we'll uh, I don't know try to competitively offend all uh, indigenous you know groups within a larger political. We start with the all, Welsh, or all, and then for, maybe... all former all Commonwealth and. All Commonwealth countries. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Start with the Welsh and work our way up. Canada. Yeah. Got definitely it. Canada. Oof, Sorry, Canadians. It. You can do an acid kitchen with some disgusting Welsh food. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, it's probably a challenge. It's so disgusting. I don't even know what Welsh food is. No, do I. I guess we'll find out. Um, so anyway, lovely Brad uh, Evans, who is my co-author, and I uh, have this book coming out, which is you know, it's the format is it's a series of uh, extended discussions, interviews with uh, numerous philosophers. Uh, thinkers and artists on the different different ways of conceiving and thinking about violence. So it's it's pretty uh, broad reaching. So it's not you know it's not my book as such. And it began actually as a series uh, at the New York Times is Stone blog little little red philosophy section. Yeah, the actually Times. the Ooh. the Stone was the first place that in all the years that. I believe Noam Chomsky made it into the pages of the New York Times. Is that right? I didn't know that. Uh, possibly. I mean, I would have thought his very average leftism had been included more broadly. Um, <laughs> I mean, they haven't even discovered Bernie yet. Like, they I mean, don't know about Noam Chomsky. I mean, Simon Critchley started The Stone, and like, I would say he's further. But it's The Stone. No one reads it. Um, I love it. I love it. No one reads it. Um, and it was a series uh, about the idea of violence, and we spoke to various people. So, Who's included in it? I mean, the late, great Sigmund Bauman. Uh, I spoke to, you know, friend of the, the New York left family, Nicholas Mertzoff, uh, who's a professor of visual culture about the, the spectacle and framing of violence in protest. I spoke to uh, Maura Weigel about the idea of uh, love and uh, modes of patriarchal violence performed by the idea of love. I spoke to an excellent philosopher called Adrian Parr about uh, climate degradation as a form of violence against humanity but i think it's a nice compendium and i think it's worth having all together as book form uh and you know it, it's broken up into these uh pretty readable uh discussions so it's a great if you wanted to pop it by your loo like it's a great like you know poop size each 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 <laughs> nice. each, each discussion each chapter is like a shiny turn <laughs> like it's the, just it'll just exactly that we timed it that way the um, future of paper books people <laughs> and then when you're done with it you don't have to buy more paper for the loo exactly we will not mind if it, it's a dual purpose uh dead tree object um so yeah so that was fun to make and the book is sort of a culmination of that um, and when's it uh, coming out? It's coming out in August, um, probably to little fanfare, you know, small publishers. Um, but, you know, I'm excited to have it out. Uh, but it's definitely not my, um, you know, first, it's not like my first book offering. It's a compendium of stuff uh, that looks broadly at violence, which I try and have, uh, I try and look at every time there are stories about 
um, social justice struggle and protest to try and look at um, the role violence plays in those and the way it's framed. Cool. Um, I think that's a very good lens with which to look at the world, especially at this current moment in time. Um, I think a lot of what gets lost in a lot of these conversations, whether it's about uh, Antifa protesters or Black Lives Matter or uh, what have you, is the, uh, stati- the violence of the status quo, right? The violence of capitalism. And, um, and its state, too. And yes, capital mm-hmm. and its states. So on that note, I would like to kick things off with a bit of sound. You've probably heard this speech before, but I'm going to play it for you again because it's great. It's um, Angela Davis talking about violence. You ask me, you know, whether I approve of violence. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, Whether I approve of guns. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by races. I remember it from from the time I was very small. I remember the sounds of bombs exploding across the street, our house shaking. I remember my father having to have guns at his disposal at all times because of the fact that at any moment uh, uh, someone we we might expect to be attacked. The man who was at that time in complete control of the city government, his name was Bull Connor, uh, would often get on the radio and make statements like uh, 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 niggas have moved into a white neighborhood, uh, we better expect some bloodshed tonight. And sure enough, there would be bloodshed. Uh, after the four young girls who were, who lived very, who lived, one of them lived uh, next door to me. Uh, I was very good friends with the sister of, of another one. My, my sister was very good friends with all three of them. My mother taught one of them in her class. My mother in fact, when the bombing occurred, one of the mothers of uh, one of the young girls called my mother and said, uh, can you take me down to the church to pick up uh, Carol? I, you know, we heard about the bombing and I, and I don't have my car. And they went down and what did they find? They found limbs and heads strewn all over the place. And then after that, uh, in my neighborhood, all of the men organize themselves into an armed patrol. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asked me about violence, uh, uh, I just uh, I just find it incredible. It, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. Um, So yeah, I think that is, you know, usually the recurring theme I try try and go back to, and I think one that, um, you know, is tragically and and, uh, perniciously overlooked in most standard news, New York Times-style narratives about an event like Ferguson, about an event like Baltimore, and it's a, a liberal and conservative tendency to either willfully or uh, unwittingly mislocate violence, um, and you know we see this we see this turn of phrase all the time when we when we read about uh, protests that that have uh, for example protests that that are riotous in form that maybe include property damage or clashes with police or clashes with neo Nazis, um, and the the standard phrases. Uh, the protest or the protesters turned violent. 
And I really think this, this violent turn needs more interrogation because what it presumes and allows for is this, this, this myth that, you know, those of us that have the privilege to maybe be protected from this in our daily lives, that, that, that we're living in a baseline of peace, such that the demand for peace, the demand for nonviolence um, in these moments is even possible or, or desirable because there is no background of, of nonviolence. There is, co there is pre-existing violence anytime, you know, in a, in a world in which we need to still assert that black lives matter, in a world that there are neo-Nazis gathering easily and publicly and, and shouting blood and soil, the background state is violent. So if there is, you know, a, a counter-violent reaction, it, is, it needs to be understood in that uh, framework as a, as a counter-violence. Um, and yeah, to ask for peace, uh, Bernard Williams, the philosopher, has a, a phrase that I think about often, which is, you know, to, to ask for peace when there is no peace is to say nothing. Particular issue of uh, protest, and that, as you said, uh, this idea that they're turning violence. Uh, it's almost always the protesters who are blamed for that in this one-sided way, right? When how many protests have we been to or how many episodes have we seen across the country and across the world where it's essentially the forces of the state, the police, that begin the violence, right? People are uh, assembling, you know, as uh, supposedly is our right to do. Uh, they have a grievance and they're together and a line of riot police show up, you know, looking like basically, I don't know, non-Antifa super soldiers and uh, push into the crowd and uh, they, they pop things off. And I'm not saying that violence against property, you know, is something that I condemn at all because I think in certain cases it's completely justifiable. But uh, I think that this one-sided concept that it's always the protesters that turn violence just completely elides the reality that it's a standoff often between armed police on the one hand and peaceful protesters on the other. Um, yeah, and I think that's that's the issue. So you know, so often it's it's you know the state and the armed wings of the state that are the, the agitators on the scene, in fact. You know, they push, they grab, um, they, they assault. Um, and, you know, but even if they don't, right, or even if we're talking not in the case of armed um, police, if we're talking about a, um, you know, uh, Richard Spencer uh, talk or rally, um, and there isn't physical agitation coming from the police or the neo-Nazis and the fascists, even if I still say that contact is violent. And it's not the counter-protesters who bring the violence, not the protesters or the rioters or the looters who bring the violence. And I think it's, you know, we can't begin sensible discussions about uh, tactics of, of uh, confrontation and tactics of property damage until we correctly locate the undergirding state of violence. Uh, all conversations misframed and do that from the jump. Yeah, it just seems like another way in which um, the sort of ruling class, the status quo, capital in its states, whatever you want to call it, um, often tries to make the victims look like the oppressors and vice versa. And I thought about that a lot when I read about the horrible violence in Gaza oh, this God. past week as well. And I know that is... You know, it's not exclusive to Israel, but I know that is like one of the cornerstones of Hasbarah is to constantly make the oppressor, the oppressor state, the settler colonial state, which is Israel, look like the victim in some way. That fucking op-ed in the New York Times by what was his name? Shmuel, Shmuel, uh, Shmuel Rosner. Shmuel Rosner yeah. was um, just absolutely despicable. I don't have words for it. I don't want to read from it. I don't I hate even yeah. referencing the fucking Guys, don't thing. Google it. Don't Google it. Yeah, don't read it. It's just absolutely disgusting. The dehumanization of uh of uh, oppressed peoples. Yeah, and it's crazy that the paper of record would admit that kind of violent ideology into what it considers to be 
like the mainstream acceptable range of opinions. Like, can you imagine them doing that about, I mean, I guess I should probably look up my history. Perhaps they did, but like, would they do that about apartheid South Africa? I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm sure they probably did, to be honest. And, I, you know, the New York Times has a uh, unbroken and storied record of uh, unquestioned support for Israel and its violences. I mean, even the, you know, that, that was a lot of the focus of Chomsky, who, again, is really not my political, like, ah. But he did, you know, really focus on that in manufacturing consent and the way in which um, the oppression of Palestinians was uh, glossed over and normalized uh, in the pages of the New York Times. And, and in certain sites in that paper, it's got a little better. Like the uh, Palestinian struggle has been given some space. But keep in mind, the baseline is a uh, complete apology for Israel. And, you know, this goes before that um, vile Rosner column. I mean, you've got Barry Weiss, oh, God. who is like literally... The stupidest woman we had, in the world. Oh, we dragged enemy. the shit I out of her. So we did a whole episode. She was on. Her. Uh, she was on Bill Maher again. I think last mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. Definitely fucking. Just De- saying. Call it. back. They're fucking. You it's heard disgusting. it here first, folks. Go back and listen to episode two with my description of what that looks like. Ugh. If you want to not be able to eat for another week. Yeah, and they were, and they were blaming the Palestinians, and you know, and I. So, in, and in terms of like lo- locuses of violence and narratives of violence, um, and I like, I kind of, I, I teach a class about critical journalism at the new school um and i always use like new york times little headlines examples and the gaza um massacre recently was a perfect one and like this was this was tweeted a lot when the new york times had as their uh, paper headline on on page a a1 uh 53 gazans died and then everyone was like oh and you see this all the time with uh, police violence in the u.s right yes. the very term officer involved the like passive voice and the violence is perpetuated by the passive voice, um, you know, really speak to how the status quo wants to uphold the notion of ag- aggressor. Um, yeah, and you know these people are such nerds about uh, active voice versus passive voice that they must have a really good reason if they're using it. <laughs> the du- yeah. Well, I, I wanted to, uh, to broaden this a bit. Well, we can stay on Gaza, but I think the point you make about Israel um, can just be generalized when it comes to the Times and the, you know, elite uh, capitalist media. media. Yeah, yeah, yeah in general. Because if you looked at at the run-up to the Iraq war, you know, it was a very, very similar thing. They took the government line, that drum up to the war with Judith Miller and everything. Uh, certainly when um, the United States backs, like, overthrowing the regime in Venezuela or any sort of, uh, you know, U.S. government action, the New York Times, as the elite paper of record, whether it's in Gaza, whether it's in Iraq or Libya or wherever, almost always in its op-eds and also in its reportage, uh, does take the state line on these things. So if Saudi Arabia is an ally of the United States, uh, you can see that horrific Thomas Friedman article where he sat down with a new prince, you know, who's jailing people, uh, you know, and continuing that uh, disgusting uh, Yemeni war that Saudi Arabia is waging on the people down there. Uh, but, you know, Tom Friedman can sit there and laud him for being a reformer, for opening up the country, because in the New York Times and in the government and in the media, you know, these people are our are, are friends and our allies. And there's no greater ally, as they always say, to the United States and vice versa than Israel. As an institution, always, uh, you know, that they cover themselves by being like, well, you know, he's a columnist, he's a columnist, and, you know, that's, that's him, um, as if their sort of standard issue coverage wasn't playing the same game, if less explicitly. But if you want to look at the kind of discursive universe covered by, like, the Post and the Time, aside from the occasional throw-in op-ed by someone great like Sarah Leonard, great socialist ally, and uh, AP Andy here, who's had a great op-ed at the time. Hell yeah. Sure um, but, you know, aside from, those, aside from those very few... Um, one-offs, anomalies, the, the discursive universe of the Times can be shown by the spread it has on its uh, op-ed roster, where the furthest person 
to the left is Charles Blow, who, you know, would, would not count as a leftist by, or, you know, abject liberal Michelle Goldberg. And then uh, to the right, we obviously have uh, Brett Stevens, Barry Weiss. And that's, really, you know, soup. And what that gets to do is allows liberals to keep framing themselves as the left, which silences mm. the left and upholds different narratives of violence. Like, yeah. as we're talking about in the way protests and conflicts. I've tried to explain to some liberal friends of mine who are sort of constantly disappointed in the quote-unquote liberal media or in elected Democrats that they're not actually being that liberal. That um, And, you know, I try to explain it in a way that's not like, I'm a snotty anarchist, haha. But, like, they these institutions represent the left wing of neoliberalism. That's right. And the reason they have people like Barry Weiss is it's this sort of honest attempt to show the other side, what they consider to be the other side of the issue. But, um, you know, it's still caught within certain parameters. They're not going to have anyone who challenges neoliberalism in any real way from either the left or the right. Mm -hmm. So you can have this acceptable range of ideas from, um, you know, these sort of liberal, coastal elite, Hillary supporter people to, on the other end, uh, sort of this... Barry Weiss. Um, she actually is like quite a bit more radical than I would expect. Someone like ra- radically, radically reactionary oh, yeah, no, than she, I would she, expect. She, the Times are higher, but she's still like, like when she says that identity politics are bad for the discourse, she's partly right. She's just also part of the problem, right? Because we have sort of these left ident- these left neoliberal identity politics, which is like diversity capitalism, and these right neoliberal identity politics, which is like you know, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy, capitalism. And, uh, you know, there's certainly some very crucial differences between those two things, but neither of them challenges the neoliberal world order in any substantial way. Right. And I'm so don't, you know, I'm not going to look for the New York Times, look to the New York Times for that and like never will. But, um, you know, I think when we're trying to see how certain discourses of, yeah, what's acceptable to speak of and, you know, how... We talk about, like, uh, the oppressed, oppressor, and, you know, where we locate violence in the world. Like, that's what you're going to get from the mainstream, and that, that has a huge, huge impact in, in how we talk about these things and what we need. Uh, I wanted to ask a question to our guest about the left's uh, digestion in Gaza. I noticed that a lot of the, the ways that people are talking about it are purely based on portraying Palestinians as victims. And then, of course, you have uh, Zionists responding. Well, they had uh, arson kites and like... Uh, with swastikas on Yeah, them, baby bombers and such. Uh, and I think the problem with that kind of dynamic is you just have to make it pure, like, Gandhian, non-violent army that are just willing to be massacred versus, you know, the oppressive force, which even if that were the case, is kind of a disgusting thing to want. And I think it's getting closer and closer to the reality as, you know, you have thousands and thousands of Gazan people realizing that they will likely die, but still going on this march of return. You describe it perfectly, and I think it's certainly not uh, restricted to this particular conflict. Um, and, it, you know, it's very much the good protester, bad protester, old canard. Um, and I think often it comes from a well-meaning place, a well-meaning, quite like liberal place of wanting to salvage and defend the oppressed actors in the narrative so you know in black lives matter protests that had riotous elements you would have uh you know a reactionary condemnation of the violence and then you would have a kind of liberal response that was like no no look many people were just marching many people didn't break any windows and you know with this situation in gaza you know no no these were journalists these were unarmed protesters um you know this 
uh, desire to have a perfect a perfect set of oppressed people um, that uh, you know it does it, it repeats a really problematic thing because then you know the the move then is to try and isolate the bad forces and the baddies and and um that that obviously gives ground for for more oppression against the, those aspects of it yeah like the people who were breaking property maybe did deserve to get shot or whatever and it's and we kind never, of yeah respectability that, politics and we never want to enter into that and i think specifically in the the case of gaza it um what what that does is uh, uphold a narrative that that says that Gazans have no right um, and no no grounds from which to actually fight back. Um, and I, there was actually an interesting John Schwartz article in in the Incept, plugging where I write. Uh, Go ahead. Last week, um, Glenn that, Reed, Greenwald, friend of the show. Um, sure. Uh, <laughs> yep. Uh, but uh, highlighted that uh, Israel in the past um, uh, with this with the case of, of Egypt and the Six-Day War used and explicitly noted it, a grounds for um, attack, a grounds for military intervention, the fact of a blockade. Uh. Um, and I think the sentence, although this would be um, not particularly word for word, but I remember it being something like a blockade and peace cannot coexist. Mm. Um, so yet that specific logic, which is then denied for Gazans who are not only blockaded, but are denied the ability to live, um, was the precise military logic that Israel used to uh, invade um, uh, to invade Egypt at that moment. So uh, it's, it's a fascinating uh, illogic, but it's logical in terms of uh, maintaining a system of power. Yeah, systems of power. I, I want to kind of bring it back to the, the structural elements, which I think in a lot of the, the liberal media, even the conservative media, right, you have this kind of set piece battle between these Gazans trying to march on the fence and then you have the IDF uh, sniping and shooting them and tear gassing them when a lot of the times, again, uh, the media and I think a lot of people on the right and the left do not want to go and look at the structural reasons why uh, these things are happening. I don't think it's funny, haha, but if you look again at that Times op-ed, which we will not read, the author is writing a lot about the sanctity of borders, right? And that's what states are, right? Is they are, they have a geographic border, right? Under which they have control. Um, tell that to the people living in the occupied West Bank right now about the sanctity of borders, right? Israel needs to protect its borders. Well, how about all the settlements happening in the West Bank? I guess borders aren't that important, uh, I don't know, 70 miles away from there. But to get to and the larger... No, go ahead. And just to paint a picture for those who don't know, like it's not like Israel is being invaded from some outside threat right. from outside of its borders. Like Gaza is an open-air prison completely contained within a hostile settle, settler colonial state. And that's where a lot of Palestinians were internally displaced to after they were forcibly removed from their homes. As we celebrate the 70th anniversary of the creation of the state of Israel, that means that a uh, Palestinian in Gaza who's maybe 71 years old or older uh, could have potentially been crossing that border and uh, wanting to go back to a place that they remember growing up as kids. You know, that was the uh, mandate of Palestine. So it's... Um, Things, again, when you look at it structurally, I, and, and this is very much tied to the, to the sense of violence, right? If you see what's happening with the blockade and the siege of Gaza, you see a quote-unquote peace process that there's absolutely no hope for whatsoever. Neither actor is, seems prepared to uh, even sit at the table with that. Gazans are impoverished. Gazans are facing um, IDF violence day in and day out. And Gazans are hopeless. And like Andy said, this is why the context 
under which you could see thousands of people, um, you know, running up again within uh, under gunfire, right? In order to basically do the only thing possible they can think to try to protest these activities. What violence does in a structural sense, and this is the siege of Gaza I'm talking about here, is it also basically it structurally determines the way that those oppressed people within that area are going to react. So if you have this massive IDF and Israeli violence and blockade, you now have a group that is uh, equally violent in rhetoric, if not in action, uh, which is Hamas. And Hamas, you know, is not a uh, an ideal national liberation uh, organization. It was, in fact, one that, if you look back, was actually helped. Uh, the it was helped to be started and created by the Israeli state because it was an actor that they thought they could deal with as an Islamic fundamentalist uh, group. But Hamas has taken this role now as the uh, official power within this little Gazan statelet. And let's not make the mistake on the left that a lot of people make too to say that just because there's structural violence. Right. And these people are trying to attack their oppressors or get out from under oppression that every way that they express that oppression and try to fight against it is a positive one and one that we should be, quote unquote, supporting. Right. And I mean, like that, and that is a problem with, um, you know, oversimplification of international solidarity. Sometimes uh, none of us should have any love for Hamas and to understand that Hamas would not have the control that they have were it not for the blockade is not to legitimize them in the same way. Um, the IRA and Sinn Féin uh, obviously garnered control and forces and support in Ireland and Northern Ireland, um, but that doesn't mean setting off nail bombs in London aimed at civilians, mass civilian populations, when I was a kid was valid just because the Irish struggle is profoundly valid and was in response to British forces occupying much of Belfast um, and making life violently impossible. Um, so, uh, you know, we, 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 we have the luxury and therefore the obligation of nuance. Um, and just to talk a little bit about, as you were saying, the, the willingness of, and you know, the willingness of just Gazan civilians to put their bodies in line for sacrifice is that, you know, that really speaks to the extremities we're talking about, which would also explain having to lean on and turn to an extreme and uh, pernicious leadership. And I think... And one that, sorry to interrupt, but real quick, and one that just like the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank uh, has utter domination, you know, over those folks, the Hamas itself, unlike the Palestinian Authority, which uses, you know, just a normal, nice, organized police force to do its violence, mm. Hamas, if, you, uh, if you're a Palestinian, if you're in Gaza, just a regular everyday person, and you don't like what Hamas is doing and you want to go out and protest... They are going to kill you or they are going to throw yeah. you in a uh, prison cell and they're going to torture you. Yeah. One of many, nice many people, lies folks. set forth by the uh, American Zionist media establishment is that Hamas has the support of the majority of Palestinians. They won't allow elections. And right. that is not years. true. And it's the idea of um, support and then devastation and necessity and the necessity that perhaps uh, made people feel they would be the right choice in, in 2000, after 2006. Um, and I think to, to talk about, um, you know, I don't know if you guys remember, but it was truly appalling. I think it was 2014 during the... Uh, Operation Cast Lead. Exactly. Was it that one or the one before? Yeah, I think it was that Operation Cast Lead in response to this, um, which, you know, was... We got a lot of images. We got a lot of uh, the spectacle of it uh, made it to... Uh, the U.S. media um, and to our social media timelines. And Netanyahu, at the time, condemned Hamas for bringing out their, and I quote, telegenic dead. Um, and Jesus. Then, yeah, and then, and you know, it's 
this because there were pictures of children who had been bombed, being ca- you know carried in their funerals and being held by their weeping parents. And you know, let's not forget that you know if there is if there are the telegenic dead, it's because Israel is bombing children until mm. children are telegenic. And uh, you know, Glenn Greenwald actually pointed out at the time that horrifyingly Netanyahu's words echoed those of Goebbels, who uh, claimed the Jews would pull out their pitiable dead for the world to see. And I think it is interesting to think about spectacles of of violence and who gets to... Which sort of bodies in the world are able to... um, Which sort of bodies in the world are able to induce sympathy and support and in what form? So you don't need to see a lot of images of certain people and you don't see them in the media to presume you support them. But it seems with oppressed brown bodies we need to almost see them ripped apart dead and lying in the street or in their parents weeping arms for their humanity to be realized um and i think that's this this profound double standard of like that you see within the way violence is spectacularized um you know and then the, the story of that you know links back to Emmett Till's mother wanting his, um, you know, destroyed face to be vis- visible in an open casket. Um, so I think thinking about that sort of gross and grim process wherein Gazans also rely on the fact of their own visible dead to get any sort of global solidarity and sympathy and to get human, like they only get humanity. I think that's really tragic. Yeah, I think in a, in a similar light and bringing things a little close to home as we keep talking about violence, um, you know, I think all of us here have been to Black Lives Matter protests here in New York City, and I'm sure that our listeners have been to them elsewhere. One of the things, and it's been very powerful, uh, but also obviously very sad, uh, but in a sense galvanizing, that you saw at those protests were um, folks um, chanting out the names of the dead. And of course, as that movement progressed and uh, became uh, more in the public awareness, uh, that list of dead grew and grew and grew. So you talked about legitimate forms of violence, right? And you talked about uh, the spectacle. Uh, we have, in a sense, our own instance of that in the United States. Uh, now that the carceral state and um, the over-policing of black communities uh, has been in the national headlines, uh, I think one question I would ask you is, you know, how does the everyday pol- uh, structural violence of the state in terms of surplus populations, in terms of people of color, um, how do we interrogate that sort of violence uh, on, a, on a structural or philosophical level? Um, well, I think, you know, and part, part of the ways these violent structures work, you know, incarceration uh, particularly is is to make uh, something invisible, right, for the rest. Of so, um, you know, that that is part of the reason, uh, the kind of removal of uh, a group of, you know, unwanted by the state uh, people, aside from it being an industrial complex, um, I think it, the ability to react to it and keep it in our psyches, in our struggle, and in something we focus on is that, you know, it's difficult. And you think about, um, you know, uh, Rikers is its own island, and then you think about um, state prisons. They're in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. Like, mm-hmm. you want to go up to five points, take a five-hour drive, go through some tumbleweed. Um, and these are the sort of maximum security prisons where, um, you know, their entire town's in the middle of nowhere, which not only makes it hard for loved ones to connect, it makes us hard for us to organize around in situ. Mm. Um, so I think that's a, you know, a, a process of uh, structural violence through disappearance. Um, mm. And then, you know, uh, and, and all kinds of different segregations enable that. So, you know, the way gentrification works and the way different communities have different access to centers of town and the way communities are segregated and police. Um, 
that mean that, you know, for something to be visible such that it could provoke outrage and be understood often takes quite a lot of extremity. And, and you know, you think about Mike Brown's body lying for hours in the street until someone puts um, a sheet over it. Do I think that was a, a huge aspect in, in uh, triggering a revolt? Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask you, um, because I know we're seeing more and more documentation of these kinds of this kind of violence against uh, especially black people in this country. Um, and we've seen a lot of horrible, horrible videos in just the past year or so of people basically being executed by the police. God, that guy in Sacramento um, was only uh, six yeah. weeks ago. We've seen, yeah, they're all, I mean, we've all seen them. They're fucking awful. And, you know, the movement to humanize these victims of police violence, say their names, uh, et cetera. Do you think this documentation is going to have an impact on the status quo? Um, I mean, it, it's really complicated because, I mean, often at the end of the day, uh, you know, to spread and share this documentation, which I do think it, it's profoundly necessary, but not sufficient. Um, Nick, per- Nick Mertzoff, I think, who's a, uh, I mentioned earlier, professor of visual culture at NYU, I think he makes a really good point around the difference between uh, looking and sort of persistent looking. He talks about persistence in this. Um, it's all too easy with the kind of unending flow of imagery spectacle a lot of which deals with horror and death um if you are looking at a twitter news cycle um be it about a school shooting or um you know just the latest uh police execution um it's very easy to normalize and not be moved by and that's a problem of saturation it's a problem of how often this things these things happen um and a deeply violent culture in general right so uh, you know these these aren't sufficient to provoke more than a kind of collectivist share and shared outrage which doesn't always lead to necessary rage and change but i think to to think about like persistent looking and and not just glossing is important but you know again none of these these are all part of of constellations of how we read and internalize and normalize our world so of course they're not going to be sufficient um and and at the same time they spread the fact of something and make us alert they also can just form part of a normalized background through our lives, which we often do. I mean, I do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think most of us who live in New York, especially, have the experience of, like, something terrible could happen at any point in time and you just can't think about it because otherwise we would be totally paralyzed right. and unable to go about our lives. And I think all, about, all the time in which the, the things I normalize that if I step back, I, I really shouldn't, you know, like the way in which I can see someone sort of screaming, yelling, obviously kind of a destitute poor person, you know, appalling smelling. And, I, you know, if I'm, if I'm in a hurry, I run, I rush past. Mm-hmm. And this is an absolutely common experience in New York. And I, I hate what I do. And I, I, but but it does, the fact of seeing it doesn't change Sure. So just to broaden it out a bit, um, I know I've seen a lot of liberal coverage of these kinds of police killings, um, and a lot of liberals are very concerned about it, I think, in very good faith. Um, But I think their analysis sometimes leaves something to be desired um, in terms of the way they frame it, like, oh... um, we just need to kick racists off the police force mm. or we need to have better punishment for uh, police cameras. racist police murderers or, you know, better body cameras, reforms in how policing is conducted, etc. And they don't really draw the connection between uh, white supremacy and capitalism in any kind of way. Um, I just want to know your thoughts on that and how you would situate 
this violence is part of a larger system. Right, I think, and, you know, that certainly is uh, what we've seen in the way that, um, you know, Obama was very much praised for uh, taking seriously the fact of racist police violence in the form of demanding reform, you know, certain things uh, about, certain acts passed about demilitarizing police forces, making it harder for police to get uh, former military weapons. Um, And, you know, liberals were really happy with that. And now we're in a difficult point when you've got Trump rolling back on those things. So the things you're trying to even fight for from the baseline were really like limited, moderate, not particularly impactful reforms. We've seen the fact that uh, body cams have really not stopped this this sort of consistent police violence. Now we just get better videos of people being killed. Right. People getting killed. Exactly. So we've got you know, uh, more transparency. So they're more transparent that their uh, racist impunity will not end. Right. Um, so I think, you know, that, that to explain to as many people as possible and for them to really get their head around it and uh, get their heads around it and agree that policing is violent. Um, and especially in the, the history of the United States, policing is racist violence. You know, these the, the origin in, in slave patrols, um, the fact of... Uh, you know, the through line from like Jim Crow to mass incarceration and uh, police's central role in that. Um, and uh, the fact that police as uniform has always been uniformly symbolic of an authority that upholds a white supremacist status quo that undergirds this country. So, you know, if you say to a liberal, I'm an abolitionist, I think we need to find a world, work towards a world without policing and without prisons, they often look at you like you're a nutbag. Um, and, and, to, I- and to add to that, um- the, the black working class in this country is obviously a particular with its own experience, but also part of the larger working class that's existed in this country. Uh, all those examples you mentioned are, of course, correct. And what you see with the professionalized police forces that come in the late 19th century, too, especially in urban areas, was a real fear of the mob, right, yeah. of the dangerous classes. And who are those? Those were the working class people, whether black, white, immigrant uh, who are trying to organize, who are trying to form unions. And uh, these police forces, of course, were the first ones to jump in uh, and break up those picket lines. Uh, whether it was black folks uh, fighting for civil rights or whether it was workers trying to organize or uh, you know, women doing street protests, whatever the case may be, the police are also at the front line of maintaining capitalist order. Right. And then, you know, um, it's, it's also it's, it's difficult to explain to people when they say, well, you know, the, what if we had more women and more black people on the police force? Would that not create a, an environment of of greater empathy and greater uh, communal engagement? Yeah, and like I wouldn't community say, policing. Right. And I wouldn't I wouldn't say, no, it would make no difference at all. But, you know, when the, you know, anarchist slogan, which is not limited to anarchists at all, like ACAB, all cops are bastards. Mm. Uh, the, the aim of that slogan is not to say every single individual person who, for whatever economic needs of their family and whatever uh, culture they grew up in, become a policeman mm. is a bastard. It's the, it's the, the way the violence of the uniform and the role it plays, structurally violent one. Social order and protection of private yeah, property. Exactly. Yeah, say and more it, about that. And, that's and, really important. And so, you know, it, it, is, it, it, as a, so it has a function in society to defend the existing order, which is instantiated through private property. Um, and who has it, who hasn't. And that's what the police remain in service of, which has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, a working class guy from Staten Island uh, thinking, I, you know, I want to be a cop. I want to I want to be a good guy. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a it's a big stretch to try and explain um, the structural violence of, of of the police to people that haven't had to experience it in everyday life. It's obviously not a shock to people that, that live with the violence of police stop, stop and frisk. The fact of, um, you know, one of the, I think, important takeaways that that people learn in 
Ferguson is, you know, people ask why there are so why are there so many police stops, and the way the ticketing system uh, that is usually, you know, aimed at black civilians, you know, stopping people in cars, actually fills city council coffers. It's how the, t- you know, it's how these governments run. Jackie Wang, in her recent book Castoral Capitalism, does a really, really good job of just um, not just talking about, you know, the, the structural violence in communities of existing police forces, but, you know, and not just the prison industrial complex and, and how, uh, you know, capital runs through that, but really talking about how local governmental organization and funding came to depend through a debt structure on policing and the money garnered from policing civilians and, uh, you know, d- demanding ticketing and violation tickets and things like that and how that crept into standard American life and, uh, that doesn't always present itself as, uh, you know, an ex- executed guy caught on video uh, with cops hand- handcuffing his his corpse. Uh, you know, these are the the modes of everyday life that keep people down and people unable to organize and un- unable to, to live and feed themselves, but keep the status quo of capital and state that upholds it running. I just like to, as I always do, add a little historical note on that. I think um, if you look at the 1970s, 1980s, and into the 1990s, uh, so politicians, of course, you'd have Reagan, you'd have the first George Bush, and then you'd have our good liberal progressive uh, Bill Clinton. You saw a, uh, a real ratcheting up of policing, but also a huge change in the way that that uh, policing was implemented. And as I always like to do, I would tie that, I think, to the, to the changes that are happening in uh, political economy uh, in the United States. So in these urban areas, and New York is, of course kind of almost like the archetype for this, um, you had a, an industrial sector you know, that pulled a lot of folks, working class people. Uh, as the 60s and 70s went on, a lot of working class uh, people of color into the city for these relatively good paying union jobs, right? You saw this in Detroit and LA and elsewhere. And then as the economy goes into crisis and things shift over into what we now would term neoliberalism as a phase of capitalism, all of a sudden a lot of those good manufacturing jobs started to go elsewhere. So now you had a situation where capital is disinvesting from the city, uh, real estate capital is disinvesting from the city. You have a process where the entire sense of what the city is supposed to produce goes from things, uh, you know, actual commodities into things like services and the financial sector. And that process takes, you know, 25, 30 years to pan out until we're in this uber gentrified hellscape of New York City where, you know, there's cops on every corner, but the violence isn't there anymore. In many, many cases, New York and a lot of other uh, uh, cities have very low rates of violence compared to 30 years ago. And what I the way I try to understand that is, again, structurally. And I think a lot of what we're dancing around is how difficult it is in order to understand things from a structural left perspective, because it's very easy to say black people are bad and commit crimes. That's why the good cops have to come in and arrest them. The right wing argument, right? But the more difficult argument to make is that in the 1970s, there was essentially created a surplus population in these urban areas, a population that was not needed by capital. It was not needed by the state in order to get votes or in order to produce. And so you essentially had a whole bunch of people who had no other means to make a living. And it's no accident, I think, that the carceral state arises, law and order arises at this point in time in order to clamp down on these people. And in many cases, for millions and millions of people, arrest them and throw them into prison as a form of social control, the dangerous classes. Um, uh, Yeah, completely. And social control and a way in in which, uh, you know, Flows of capital can continue. You start, you start seeing more and more ticketing. You start seeing, uh, you know, it, it is certainly like a big part of the constant, the violent constellation that um, was, is, remains the war on drugs. Um, right. Like you, you know, you can create 
value by arresting. Yeah, and I don't want to let these people off the hook too much, like Reagan, Clinton, etc. Like, surely they were pretty bad people driven by some pretty bad ideology. Jamie would have voted for Reagan. It, she told me. <laughs> it also, Ronald Reagan did nothing wrong. No, <laughs> it also speaks to the structural limitations of bourgeois politics, right? Just like with the police, it's not necessarily that all of these police are bad people on an individual basis, although maybe they are, you know, that's structurally what they're put there to do. And um, it's also what, it's insignificant if they're good or bad people. Yeah. Right. And what happens within this structure is largely determined by these underlying economic forces, which we as humans created, but are now completely controlled by, like um, we talked about in the last episode, the shift from uh, this sort of old school learning style of universities to this more neoliberal market focused one. Like, this is how it happens. It happens due to the vicissitudes of the market. And I think a lot of the time, this is why leftists and liberals are talking past each other when we talk about these things, because, um, like, we talk a lot about materialism to the point that people are sick of it. But Mm -hmm. it really is, like, everything makes so much more sense when you look. It's like the skeleton key to understanding everything. And, you know, both liberals and conservatives, right, both left neoliberals and right neoliberals have this idealist concept of where these problems come from, whether it's because, you know, black people are morally depraved and prone to fatherlessness. On or the, Appalachians. On the, yeah, or, yeah, or Appalachians on the one hand, or on the other hand, you know, um, white people are racist and that's a failure of their morality. Where, uh, whereas, you know, leftists would always go back to the underlying material basis for this and i think you know what like what is often missed in like the divide that is a you know a very real one between liberals and leftists um is it, it does make me laugh in a certain way like i think when you point out the idealism of liberals and it's always liberals who are looking at socialists and anarchists being like mm. you wacky people <laughs> you're so you crazy. utopians um whereas you know they're their, you know, deeply semi-religious faith, and I think this is what you're talking about, in institutions Mm -hmm. as uh, the upholders of uh, a a moral state of affairs. Which is why Trump can have a hashtag resistance that's not only Democrats, but also many Republicans, right? right? Because those institutions are something that they care a lot about. and And they truly believe that, like, uh, you know, uh, a liberal democracy upheld by faith in these institutions will, if it done, if it were done best, twere only it were better, mm-hmm. would you know deliver us into a, the state of you know equality and harmony that we uh, all you know in some ways want. Um, and, and and it's historic too. And I think you know, Sean, your uh, input about uh, the history of these things is always necessary because you know it, it, part of it is to do with this enlightenment delusion that the state was formed by a kind of social contr- compact yeah like the i and you even see leftists who aren't thinking about it when they're writing it talk about you know this populism and the, the austerity measures also ripping apart the social contract and it's like what, you know nietzsche even called the social social contractualism a sort of liberal myth um a very ideological myth because like the state was always formed through like a sort of violent grabbing of power and a violent assertion of power. It was never certainly a violent one. There was never this agreement with state powers and a populace that was this gesture towards harmony. And and that was the like raison d'etat. The raison d'etat was never that. So I think that's why liberals get stuck in a sort of like, you know, 
so baffled and so so unsure of what to do with themselves post Trump's election because you know they just presume like well, you know but what about the social contract where did that go and like you know yeah. wither, wither it ever me like, where did where do they think that private property came from in the first place um, so yeah so I think yeah like on, on the private property thing one thing that really popped out of my uh, my mind uh, Tosh when you were talking about how they view these institutions and they, how, how they view the how they view the government if only government were free of corruption if only we could tweak things in this technocratic way you know it's the self-governing mechanism of liberal institutions that's exactly the same way they look at markets right right and and i don't want to make too strong a point but i don't think it's an accident actually that they feel that way about both of those things in this particular era uh, i think that again one of the things that separates uh, liberals from leftists is that um we understand that these things are not self-governing, that not only is capitalism prone to crisis, as we've seen over and over again, but the state is prone to crisis, right? The state is this violent entity, and the state has within it uh, basically the seeds of its own destructions in many cases. We have the longest-running constitutional government in world history right now, but um, that's not, that doesn't say that 10 years down the line, we couldn't fall back into something different. Probably worse, but maybe better. I don't know. Yeah, but I do think that actually I was at um, Theorizing the Web, which is like a fun, fun yearly conference in New York, which does what it says on the label, Theorizes the Web. Brilliant uh, writer and editor Maya Binyam in a panel made the point that um, liberal and mainstream media likes to point out um, both the like stupidity and like, the violent rhetoric of, of Trump and his um, administration and the kind of loving to point out his mistakes in tweets and typos and things like that. And it's like... Misunderestimating well, him. And, and this idea, even if you're estimating him correctly, what is the tacit... It was a George W. Bush joke. Oh, misunderestimating <laughs> Which, yeah, also, like, this is nothing new. And, you know, I, I, Foucault talked about the fact of, like, absurdity and buffoonery never being a kind of contradiction to state control like you know we've yeah. got a long history of like buffoons in power that's never yeah. been but like quite... why do fascists use violence it's, it's because they're too stupid to rule in any other way right and, and also you know Maya's point I think was a good one which she was like well what, what, what would what would these liberals prefer like a more efficient state like, yes it's not to say <laughs> oh yay for these buffoons and then you know that the buffoons are part of their own collapse they're not power is completely maintainable and as pernicious when you know organized by a certain absurd buffoonery but the, des- the pointing out of that as the problem suggests this weird desire this institutional desire that things run smoothly and i'm like mm, that wouldn't be my response to when i see and laugh and like joke about trump not being able to smell to spell including his wife's own name um <laughs> really he oh sent a tweet this I know it's so lame to like talk about Trump tweets, but this is actually funny. Um, he was like, because M- M- Melania was ill, right? Or had something and she went back home to the White House and he tweeted like, it's so good to have Melanie home. Oh my <laughs> God. Like, Hashtag free wow. Melanie. Oh, <laughs> like, Melanie. Wow. I mean, we can walk and chew gum here at the Antifada. <laughs> it's possible to laugh at Trump's buffoonery at the same time that we have a clear-eyed historical materialist analysis right. of where sure. he comes from. So... Uh, this is an idea I've been kicking around and you guys can feel free to shoot it down or cut it out if it is bad. Consider it shot down. um, (laughs) No, so I feel like the far right also has a critique of neoliberalism as well as a somewhat materialist analysis of where the world is going. They're just somewhat more uh, pessimistic and dark and tribalist in their view of human nature and they're also on the other side of things. 
right? Whereas leftists want everyone to cooperate in order to survive in this coming ecological and financial catastrophe that we see on the horizon. Um, they have a more exterminist view mm. of how we're going to organize ourselves. Whereas liberals might have a more uh, Pollyanna-ish outlook by saying, um, you know, yeah, we maybe we can, maybe we can't see the writing on the wall, but, um, you know, all we need is, like, more entrepreneurship and more people to take, like, individual actions to pull themselves up and, uh, you know, everything's going to be fine. We just need a few little tweaks and the system is going to function just like it always has. Whereas, you know, people on the far left and the far right uh, both, I mean, they seem kind of crazy to people who um, aren't really paying attention to this stuff. But like, we both see this coming catastrophic state of affairs that's going to happen and it's already happening and upending the current world order of things. Um, and in a way, they have a materialist analysis too. They're just, they're getting people ready for what they think the outcome should be, which is, you know, exterminate large portions of the population, deport them, whatever you have to do, and keep this shrinking the piece of this shrinking pie, uh, keep it for the right people, right? The Europeans, the Anglo-Saxons, the people who they believe are the natural inheritors and rulers of this world. So like, it goes back to a lot of conversations we've had on Majority Report in the recent past too, where, um, you know, talking about where the uh, the right wing is coming from and where all of these Trump people are coming from. And basically, they see a shrinking pie and they see uh, women and minorities and historically marginalized groups getting higher proportions of the pie than they used to. And their reaction is a protective one saying, no, we're going to fight back against this because the pie is shrinking and that's how it's going to be. Whereas I think um, people on the left might say, oh, the pie is shrinking, but it doesn't have to be that way. I, I agree with you. Uh, but but my I guess my question is, is there materialism? You're saying uh, some sort of uh, biological racial determinism? Because uh, I think that, that the, the concept of like IQ science and like, you know, the Aryan race and things of that sort is seems like it's grounded in some no, sort of naturalism. That stuff is but, bullshit. It's, but it's That's, idealist because it's just not yeah, true. That stuff <laughs> is all part of their ideology uh. that they're building this ideological framework to justify what they believe is going to happen in the coming years. They talk about resources and who should be able to access resources in this idea of homeland and who has... Uh, a right to the like you know there is a sort of material relationality to land and the idea of home which Blood is and soil as you were saying this idea that um uh marginalized communities people of color women and then queers would would be taking those resources doesn't you know doesn't pay attention to actually material history about the consolidation of wealth um into fewer hands i think maybe what i'm getting for what you said babe is that they do see things not necessarily from a like a historical materialist analysis but one that's very grounded in the material world of resources and who's going to get them. Is that the yeah. sense you meant it in? Yeah, like the sense that it's a zero-sum game and they want to be the winners of this zero-sum game based on these um, really pseudo-scientific affiliations, but ones that have resonance with a lot of folks nonetheless. Whereas I think there's this idea on the part of both the center-right and center-left, I think, that um, capitalism can provide an infinite amount of prosperity for everyone and nobody has to be a loser 
if only we play our cards right and have the right technocratic policy. Fascism was historically a reaction towards communism. Mm -hmm. So I think when they develop a, like a argument that there's dwindling resources um, and we have to close the borders and shoot anybody trying to cross them, which is, I mean, definitely like their vision future, um, it's, it's not a realistic response to what's going on with the economy or with resources. It's a way of creating an us and them and borders, whether they be national or you know, within the nation. And it's, it's more about the creation of a, a, of myth than actually responding to material questions. Of the... Well, I guess I'm wrong then. I think you're totally correct in the sense that it came out of socialism, but it's just a reaction. It's not genuine. It's like, uh, what's the term? It's her invoke, uh, social democracy, right? They want to have like a, like Spencer wants to have like a whites only welfare state. <laughs> yeah. And we see <laughs> that in States. a lot of far right parties in Europe too. Like uh, even Trump has made some rhetorical feints yeah, in that sure. direction, even if he has no intention of actually listen, carrying listen, it out. Le Pen and the national front in France is way more supportive of the, you know, the gains made by working class French people than Macron is. It's yeah. just they want it for only whites and they want yeah. to kick all the Arabs out. In many ways, they ran against austerity just for certain groups of people. Well, it's the same, you know, the AfD with the language of Heimat, you know, it, it, it means home in German. But and you're talking about alternative for Deutschland? Oh, uh, AfD is alternative for Deutschland, which is the far right party in Germany that um, did sort of remarkably well in the last election and is, is gaining more and more purchase, largely... Um, and certainly rhetorically in reaction to um, the amount of refugees that, that, that came into the country in the past three years and that you, being able to, as we're seeing um, uh, in our own country, to kind of position them as a threat and an enemy through that, uh, using a language of, of homeland and, and who has, has and should have access. And yeah, and then, you know, there is a, there is a reliance on a, a talking about resources, um, but, uh, you know, again, based on its own mythology of, of who's home and where. So there's a there's a sort of very like ideological mythic aspect to this kind of rhetoric so to kind of round out this discussion on violence you know uh, in the general sense you know the real world and in terms of ideas and how we understand them um i wanted to talk about how the left relates to violence somewhat historically but more about how how we here in the room think that uh revolutionary violence uh were it to happen is uh inevitable or whether it's something that should be avoided uh what um our stance should be on that and as a way to segue into that, I think that structural violence is oftentimes invisible. You can, you can go to a library and you can pick up a book called The Black Book of Communism, which is a piece of propaganda, but with some true facts in it, right? Talking about the uh, purges of uh, Stalin and the gulag system, uh, talking about the famine in Ukraine, which they call the Holomador, which is a little ideological, but uh, a lot of people obviously starved during primitive uh, socialist accumulation. Yeah, um, people love to bring it up right now about how people are eating rats in um, Venezuela. Venezuela. Yeah. I mean, certainly Marx himself caused, I think they say, 1.7 billion deaths. Um, and so communism is a, is a dead ideology. I mean, we've all heard this stuff, right? But, um, you know, before we get into like the left and violence, I want to talk about, again, the structural violence that we've seen historically. And there are a lot of examples. One great one I could bring up would be the Bengal famine, uh, which happened in uh, then India, which is now part of Pakistan, where um, I think between 4.5, I'm sorry, 3.5 and 4 million Bengalis died of a completely preventable famine uh, because Churchill uh, refused to give them aid. In fact, he said, I hate Indians. They're a beastly people with a beastly religion. Jesus. And then he said, why should we provide any food aid for these people when they're just, just going to breed like rabbits? So, by the way, uh, considered and voted 
the greatest Britain. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we, and we love him here in the United States, too. He's like a, some sort of hero here. And actually, it's funny, too. You talk about Gandhi earlier. When he first, Churchill first heard about the famine, and this is happening in uh, 43 during the Second World War, the first thing he asked is, oh, did that, uh, that fake year uh, Gandhi die yet of the famine? Because if not, I don't want to hear about it. Because they had already started the independence movement. But, you know, that that right there is a crime of four million dead, which, you know, matches probably a lot of what happened in Ukraine and in China during the uh, Great Leap Forward. But I think maybe the most glaring example of this sort of um, what we would not call violence, I think, ideologically, but which caused the death of a lot and a lot of people uh, was the Irish potato famine. Mm -hmm. And people, you know this because you're British and uh, somehow Britain ended up entwined with Ireland I forget how maybe they just decided to be friends or whatever (laughs) so so that the history of the Irish potato famine is not merely of a blight that destroys the potatoes and uh, all these poor Irish people die because of natural circumstances Uh, to make a very long story short you had the basically the imposition of uh, market-driven agriculture within Ireland because in order to keep a really cheap um, labor source for the landlords over there who were uh, getting a lot of money from all sorts of things like uh, wool and uh, agriculture and livestock in general and some small manufacturing, if you had a whole bunch of people who were eating the cheapest thing and the easiest thing to produce there, which was one type of potato, you had a very cheap source of labor, right? And um, basically, this is pushed upon the Irish people so that they're almost solely relying on potatoes with a little subsistence agriculture uh, in the uh, mid-19th century. Now, what happens is a blight comes from the New World, and this blight is a fungus which destroys pretty much the entire potato crop of Ireland, what people are, you know, primarily uh, subsisting off of. And this is where capitalism ties in, because in previous uh, famines, which, you know, happened uh, during that period of time, uh, A, the potato wasn't dominant, so people had other things to, to eat, and also the government... Uh, stop the export of all these agricultural goods because the people in Ireland needed them to survive. What happens in 1845 and 46 and 47, 48 with this Irish potato famine is a new idea and a new politics arose, which is laissez-faire. So as opposed to other crises that happen, uh, Lord uh, John Russell, uh, who is a Whig, was in charge of the policy there. Um, He basically said that the market will fix this problem. He said that we need to use laissez-faire economics uh, in order to solve this crisis. And so the Irish need to keep exporting food, even as less and less food was available for these people. So for that reason, essentially, these people are dying of food and they're still sending a bunch of their food off uh, to England and the rest of the world. And this laissez-faire ideology, which was implemented by Great Britain, led to the death of, they estimate, about 800,000 Irish people and the emigration of 1.5 to 2 million people, Irish people across the world, out of a population of 8 million, that's 3 million people about affected by this. And that's not seen as violence. That's seen as something that's natural. And the birth it just of, happened. not to mention, the birth of about a million future cops, and shall red, we say. And Red Sox fans. Yeah, no, and, it, and it's not taught as violent, though, right? Like, it's not, like, in England going to school, like, they gloss over colonialism, um, and certainly when you talk about the Irish troubles, you know, so, um, this, is, this is learnt as, you know, a, a process, not a structurally imposed set of things that, that led to a sort of genocidal wiping out of an oppressed population. So, so where I would like to go with this, and this is for Andy, this is for Natasha, and whatever my wife's name, I forget what it was, uh, Jamie, um, 
that's an invisible violence, right? But then the violence of Stalin and the gulags or Pol Pot, for example, is made very visible, right, in our history uh, as this political, as, as the inevitability of what left politics will bring you to. Even Jordan Peterson will say that trans rights is the equivalent of a Maoist cultural revolution that's going to destroy millions of lives. How would um, he react to a real Marxist? I just want to know. He'd slap him silly. Yeah, I'm um, sure he would. Uh, bucko. So what I want to ask is, what's the what's our vision of revolutionary violence, or what is what violence is acceptable on the left? I am I will start out by saying that lone wolf terrorism and bombing of civilians, like we've seen in a lot of cases, is absolutely fucking abhorrent, and I do not will never find that to be an acceptable form of violence. But let's sort of think about the uses of uh, violence in the past and today. Um, so I think it's complicated, right? And I and I have. A distaste because I think it's dumb. Not dumb as a thing to do, a dumb as a thing to believe in when you have um, sort of insurrectionally leftists talking about, you know, building a military in the woods. And like, have you seen <laughs> what you're up against? And maybe, you know, maybe that's just, you know, a shame. But I also don't like it. Well, the protracted people's war could start in Appalachia and spread to the Ozarks, take the mass line. And I'm just know, kidding. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, oh, you know, you, you, pick, <laughs> you, you pick up your few rifles and, you know, like you start talking to the 30,000 soldiers of the NYPD. So, and you know, that, you know, that speaks to what we're up against, but it also speaks to having to better tacticians and talking about infrastructure and control and, and how, and you know, I don't, if I knew, then I would be, uh, you know, playing a probably great role in my life and society. I have no idea. Obviously, what gets called and decried and criminalized as violence, like, you know, certain types of property damage. Um, I think we also have to be careful when we talk about property damage and violence, because uh, often we, we kind of, we're not careful enough, so we'll be like, property damage isn't violence. And I would say most of the things that are criminalized as property damage, you know, uh, bank windows getting broken, what happens in a riot, you know, I, I don't want to call that violence. But of course, there can be violence against inanimate objects because vi different victims are created. So, you know, if you, de if, uh, you know, a, a neo-Nazi desecrates a, a Jewish grave, that is a violence, like it creates a difficult victim. So I think whenever we talk about violence, we have to not, we have to make sure we finish our sentences, like against whom, by what, for what, who are like what is a victim um and i think that stopped that stops us or at least should catch us from making glossed and uh, overly broad proclamations which i'm not interested in doing and you know quite often i'm i'm more interested in destabilizing and, and pointing out misframings so you know i i don't know i i, I think i agree with you sean about like you know I, I, the sort of tactics i would never advocate for and you know anything sort of individualized like that it, it seems like you know what is the where where would that go? What is what sort of thing are we trying to reproduce in the world? As a wise person once said, and I'm not sure whose quote this is, you cannot bomb a social relation. Yeah. I mean I think there's a real debate on the left as to what constitutes acceptable violence and what is an appropriate response to the violence of the status quo and the violence of capitalism. And I think all of us here in this room agree that capitalism needs to end. If we're going to organize society around human needs. Not Andy. Rather than... Oh. He just told me before the show. Oh, yeah? <laughs> He's a real cipher, that one. And I was raised to be a nonviolent person. Uh, you know, my parents are hippies. And I have sort of a visceral revulsion towards violence. But I also realize that if we're going to end capitalism, there might need to be violence at some point in time. So... I don't romanticize it. In fact, I think it's really scary and it's a major tension in my own politics. Um, at the same time, I don't think we should rule it out because um, 
like Mark said, you know, it's not up to me to write recipes for the cook shops of the future. And whatever happens has to be very much contingent on the political and material circumstances of the time and the place in which it's happening. So I really don't have a great answer to that question quite yet. But, but, and what we, but what we can talk about now is something, you know, that isn't futurally projecting and isn't about you know, how we do a vast structural uh, rupture. Um, you know, we can talk about, like, what to do about uh, organizing fascists. And that's a big question that's coming up about, like, violence, you know, punching Richard Spencer, which I, you know, did take, like, visceral joy in. Oh, I think we all do. But, you know, uh, we've got a really problematic baseline now when you can punch Identity Europa, you can punch Richard Spencer, and then you always get this this question of, you know, where's the line? Uh, Where is your line? Slippery slope. What is your target? Are you... And A, I think one of the problems there is that it's a hypothetical that... um, It works as a hypothetical, but it's... uh, never really a practical question like we don't have lots of uh antifa participants rounding up basic like college republicans who aren't also attending you know a milo yiannopoulos talk and who aren't also going to the unite the right rally and getting like beaten up that's that's it's not happening so i don't think we're even anywhere close to having to really talk about this gray area of targets but i and i've written about this before and i think um you know, uh, a lot of concepts we have, we don't actually have clear delineations of when they end, right? We don't know, you know, Wittgenstein's whole argument about, like, a game. Like, he couldn't give you a uh, definition of the term game now that you would know in perpetuity would always describe what a game is. You know, does it always have players? No, because of individual games. Does it always have winners? No, because you have a draw. You know, this is the family resemblance concept. It's a Venn diagram of things, but it's potentially got no limit. But yet we confidently use the word game and it's never bothered us before. But yet when you talk about who gets to be a punchable fashion, I can't give you the limit, but we use the word game and it doesn't bother us. You know, it's about practice and habit that we learn to kind of consider a target or not. Maybe punching Nazis is like the definition of the Supreme Court gave of uh, pornography. It's you can't define it, but you know it when you see it. <laughs> right, and I so think maybe little, you know when the the Nazi can be punched, you know, in that moment. Whether and it's I think it's also like it's not because I mean the problem with that definition is you know it's it's not that it was a problematic definition per se. It's who gets to see it and who gets to decide is the problem with the Supreme Court decision about that and obscenity. Sure. But you know if we're saying about targets and targets of violence here, it's not just you know a, an authority and a power that gets to decide that and a kind of puncher-in-chief uh (laughs) what we would be advocating for is you know communal process such that we know it we choose it not i choose it yeah that's another point i was going to make um the difference between sort of satisfying interpersonal violence versus something more systemic Mm -hmm. and it reminds me of that article that our friend Jared wrote about uh, how he punched his boss in the face. <laughs> Great and article on Vice, yeah. Yeah, it's, it was called, I think, I Punched My Boss in the Face. That was also and, my boss. I know the boss that he punched oh, in the wow. face. Oh, yeah, wow. Nice. I knew that. So, like, I didn't punch But him. the conclusion that he came to in the yeah. end was, you know, he had an excuse to be in Vice. He had a punchy headline. Well, but uh, in the end, he said, you know, it felt great to punch my boss in the face, but I also realized that doesn't change anything about the system and about the power relations that exist here. So whether or not we are using violence, um, I think the yardstick that we should use is, is this going to create some sort of systemic change or not? And I think there is an argument to be made that all of these, uh, you know, much maligned Antifa protests 
actually played a pretty big role in suppressing the alt-right and denying them a platform. Yeah. Sure. And, and, and draining and, them of and, real material resources, right? Yeah, and then historically that's been true, and it's funny how things play out over time, right? After, um, when, when service, at the end of the Second World War, back in England, uh, you had all these service members coming back, a, lot, a number of whom were Jewish. Um, and you had Jewish service members coming back to England and seeing this, thinking that, you know, they de- defeated fascism, the Nazis were gone. Um, and they were coming back and there was a huge amount of uh, fascist organizing. And Jewish service members seeing this, um, and they organized into fighting brigades, and the, the 43 group, their phrase was like, maim not kill. And they beat the absolute shit out of Oswald Mosley's fascists as they All organized. The black shirts. And they were very much, you know, given the credit of, of beating back post-war rising fascism and now in in sort of fable and history the 43 group are super praised Vidal Sassoon the hairdresser he was he was one of them hmm. like vi- the, the word didn't exist now but these were like vigorous and ferocious anti-far tactics yeah, yeah. And sorry the- Trevor Noah <laughs> and and you know we're actually we're talking about a very sort of uh reactive in our case on the left sort of um violence against you know, relatively small, but obviously frightening uh, growth of the quote-unquote alt-right or these neo-fascists in the United States. Just imagine the the, the sort of um, upheaval, I won't even say violence, but imagine the amount of social and political and uh, cultural upheaval that would be necessary in order to eliminate uh, capitalism and everything that comes uh, from it, from this world. That's, I think, the ultimate huge uh, question that faces us is that if you know we're squeamish about whether R- Richard Spencer could get punched in the face and, and that's okay or not, how do we even imagine what sort of actions would be necessary in order for the vast majority of the people in this world to actually seize what's theirs? Again, I, I I'm like you, um, Tosh. I, I don't. I, I, I don't. I certainly am not a pacifist. On the other hand, though, when I see these like Marxist-Leninists or these Maoists or even insurrectionary anarchists who uphold violence as this like wonderful revolutionary principle, they make these gulag jokes. But you know, they're probably serious. They probably would gulag and execute people, right? That scares the shit out of me just as much as like the person who wants to sit on their hands while Mosley and the fascists, you know, march through a Jewish neighborhood. Uh, yeah, as folks on the more uh, anarcho end of the spectrum. I think most of us would rather not uh, sit in a gulag for the rest of our lives <laughs> after the uh, tankies come to power. <laughs> Still, like, a lot of the tactics that I personally subscribe to and would participate in fall under the category of nonviolent direct action, right? Political education, uh, mutual aid, um, spreading awareness, general strikes, um, financial sabotage, things of that nature. But I also acknowledge that if these struggles were ever to pick up steam and become a real threat, I mean, we've seen it in the past. Um, The state is not going to give up power willingly, and they're probably going to respond with violence. And that is an eventuality that is still very hard for me to even think about. No, and it's true. But like, I think we have to be realistic that we're not going to be ready in terms of armed violence to be a counter. So it's about being like strategical if that, you know, yes, I do believe the state has never been afraid to step in and you know, talking of general strikes, the, the state has never been afraid to react violently to that, to talk about, you know, any riotous activity, the state has never been afraid to react um, with the most extreme violence possible. Um, but it, it just wildly impractical for an organizing left to say, okay, no, no, we'll be ready for that because we, it's like, right. it's not like, yeah. Yeah. unfortunately, and, there is such an imbalance now that that is just like wildly. Impractical. And if you look at things historically, you know, successful revolutions in the past, you know, the Bolshevik revolution, uh, so-called was uh, relatively bloodless. 
you know, the, as Lennon famously says, power was in the street and we picked it up. And um, obviously that was because of the force of the Soviets. But uh, it was basically because the, the military in the, in the Second World War under the Tsar and then the Constituent Assembly was an empty shell and soldiers were defecting. And a form of counterpower in the uh, workers' councils came up and it just took the political will in order to go to the Winter Palace and arrest everybody, right? Where the violence comes is in the counter-revolution, right? Which is the Civil War. Yeah, that's what I'm and talking then, about. And then I would argue too that the other, the next counter-revolution, which is the rise of Stalin, uh, liquidating basically all the old communists and then many, many other uh, political enemies and uh, instituting uh, what we call Stalinism. So yeah, like you know, a revolution happens and um, it could be like the Carnation Revolution was relatively bloodless. And in all these cases, uh, it seems like you need defections from those elements in the state that are able to inflict violence and have the legitimate right to inflict violence, like the police or the military. They refused or they came to the side of people in struggle trying to fight against the old system. So, you know, the idea that we're going to, again, like Natasha was saying and Jamie, you were saying that we're going to have equal arms. We're going to have Osprey helicopters and like, you know, 50 cows on helicopters. Yeah, no, floating. We're not. <laughs> it's just absurd. You know, I don't I haven't got my tank from Soros yet. But I'm waiting. <laughs> Even in a situation where a revolution is happening, as we've seen in the history of, say, the Russian Revolution, the majority of this work is political work. And that is something that we can do without any violence at all. That's right. Until the state gets scared enough of us that they start throwing us in jail and shooting us. But So I think I'd like to end this on a more positive note, if I may. Um, I really liked your interview about love with Maura Weigel in the Times. I liked that piece very much. It was um, called The Revolutionary Love of Bashing a Fascist Face <laughs> Open, right? <laughs> oh, no, that was a different one. Different one. Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, and you talk a lot about some things that we've talked about on this show quite a bit already. Uh, social reproduction, um, heteromonogamy as an oppressive force, but love as also a potentially revolutionary force. Um, you go over how different uh, feminist thinkers have thought about love through the years, whether it was um, Sylvia Federici, who thought that this sort of heterosexual marriage was always going to be an oppressive unit. Um, you talk about bell hooks, who I really like a lot, talking about how love is a verb and a potentially uh, creative or resistance-laden force in the world. Um, I would also bring in uh, some Bolshevik thinkers like uh, Kolontai, who believed that um, this new kind of love should take over and our love for each other in society would supersede our love for any kind of romantic partners or children or family units in the family would sort of uh, wither away as this uh, bourgeois way of organizing things. And um, personally, I have felt a little bit resistant to that idea uh, when I'm reading this stuff because that's not how my life is structured. You know, I have a partner and I, who, that? <laughs> who I love very much Aww, and thanks. I really feel I like... Um, you know, it's us against the world. But then again, if the world weren't so terrible, maybe that wouldn't be such a dilemma for me. And I know you have a partner as well who mm -hmm. you presumably love very much as well. Yeah, I do. And Shout out to Lucas. Oh, <laughs> tell him you love him for the first time on air. <laughs> Lucas, let's get married. Oh, oh, oh you heard it here first, That's a folks. first on Antifada, marriage proposal. So, so like, how do you uh, navigate these ideas in your own life? And what do you do with that? I mean, I think it's really complicated. And I think um, 
you know, so so when Moira and I were talking about it, one thing that was central was to, to note that the idea of love as object has obviously, sometimes it gets spoken about it as if it's like transcendental, unchanging object over history. Whereas, you know, she's often, she her work has looked at the fact of dating and courtship has obviously changed a lot over history and has, you know, always reflected certain sorts of economic relations, you know, uh, a lot of the idea of, of going steady, that, that very phrase came about during uh, post-warful employment, and now you've got um, kind of more precarious, um, different modes of, uh, you know, dating in a more precarious economy. And, and she's not saying they're, like, directly causal, but, like, we have to think about uh, the way in which courtship, not necessarily love, but that which is called this love object, um, has shifted over history, of course, and it has to do with economic relations. Um there's also, you know, as you point out, Jamie, this this uh, revolutionary discourse of love and, you know, a recognition that uh, a vector for capitalism and uh, reproduction of ourselves through the family form um, has sort of been an object of critique for the left. And, you know, how do we smash the family, smash heteropatriarchal normativity? And I think sometimes that gets taken into a direction that is really thoughtless. Um, in terms of, you know, the only radical, the only liberatory thing to do is fuck everything, <laughs> no partners, fuck. Uh, no some friends like that. And you know what, I do too, and I live, and actually I've had partners like that, and it ended up performing a really sort of violent oppression. And like, I'm aware that our desires are formed by the society that we're in, so could be reorganized differently, but that's not done by suddenly like jumping into desirous spaces you don't actually want. Mm. Um, and sometimes I think people talk about being post-heteronormative in a way that's so absurd. Like, if someone says they're post-racial, right, they're fucking racist. Right. And I think sometimes when people are like, well, I'm post-gender, it's like, no, 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 I'm still <laughs> very fucking situated in this world. I can challenge it and think about it and, you know, think about challenging our monogamies and our ideas of trust. But I'm not going to be like, yeah, fuck that noise. I'm over it. I'm so liberated. And to be fair, if we think about, like, societal organizations and, and how they are performed through techno-capital, like... This kind of anarcho chat about free love, you know, again, again existed in the very patriarchal '60s free love movement. Even though that very same, even though that same movement, you know, did have you know important, crucial strides towards feminist liberation. Um, you also have, you know, people at the fucking Playa at Burning Man and people in you know uh, penthouse apartments on in Soho swiping through their thrinder um, to have their you know, uh, massive orgy sex parties. So, you know, that, that hasn't changed the, the social relations just because you're having an orgy in your, you know, your family. Yeah. Uh, and Natasha found out about our Soho penthouse. Uh, I guess the party's <laughs> off. Cancel and, the party. And Sorry, like everybody. And to clarify, no, Kolontai, <laughs> oh my God, yeah, totally. Uh, Kolontai wasn't talking about anonymous sex either. She she had this idea of like uh, winged arrows where sex would be used to form these uh Social bonds but of I, uh, revolutionary sure, love, but I think you know people. Even if it's not anonymous, this idea of like having this revolutionary idea of using your body for that sort of intimacy yeah. to create. I'm like sure, feasibly, but this idea that it is necessary. Necess I think that's what happens a lot with like revolutionary chat about sex and love. Is it's this sort of requirement to be leftist enough or rad enough. But like to have certain, but what an absurd thing of saying like certain types of bodily connection. Oh yeah, or the revolutionary love could be platonic as well. I exactly. think like, she I defines it in a bunch of open-ended right. ways. And I think it's that that kind of confusion. Like love, yes, of course. I think like or there should be many, many forms of love. I'm bored of rad leftists 
telling other leftists that they should fuck everyone and that mm. we all have to fuck each other. Because I don't think we do. And also I don't. And if people want to, fine. But I don't think that's sort of like... There's nothing inherently political is what you're saying yeah, about that. And it's and almost like the uh, things we do as individuals in the culture don't actually do much to change the underlying structure so of society. Yeah, and I don't think... And I, do, and I do think, obviously, there are hierarchies that are, you know, very, really violent that organize our desires and, you know, uh, you know, the, the way that works around uh, differently abled bodies and queer bodies and trans bodies and, and it's not fair and it's wrong or, you know, like slim or chubby and it's, and it's not fair, but I'm not going to... I, don't I think, think it's it, actually thick now, not chubby anymore. Uh, yeah, that the is the politically correct term <laughs> for it. Two C's, <laughs> mm-hmm. thick, two C's yep, yep. Thick, thick bodies. We'll put um, that in the jargon notes. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't think therefore the like the liberatory thing to do is then police your own desires out of like doing what you want and like not having a, a partner that you want or like, and you know, your guys's wedding was this beautiful, joyful thing. And I don't want a world where that is, you know, eradicated as counter revolutionary. I think that's, and I think it's boring to, to live that way. And I think it's unfun. And I think, you know, I don't think that's what bell hooks was talking about when she was talking about the redemptive possibilities of love. I don't want to get too sentimental because we don't really do that on the Antifada. But when Jamie and I were first together many years back, um, sorry, you're not that old, babe, don't <laughs> worry. But uh, some years back, um, I was I was still caught up, I think, in some of what you're talking about, Tosh, uh, this, this sense that, uh, uh, you know, bourgeois marriage is this, you know, uh, archaic uh, institution of oppression that needs to be destroyed and I'll never get married. And Jamie and Jamie and I and a bunch of our friends were actually in New Orleans. We were staying in this oh awesome house at this, uh, having a really good time. And uh, <laughs> we were all, so we were all drunk. It was like, we we're day drinking because it's New Orleans and that's just what you do. And somebody mentioned something about marriage and Jamie was in the kitchen. No, I was our in the friend who was from Australia and New Zealand was saying she needs to find someone to have a green card marriage with so oh. she can stay in the country. Ooh. Maybe you should tell the story. And Sean here, kindly enough, offered to marry her. I'm charitable. And it's an important thing to do. He had just met her. No nations, no borders. Fuck law and order. Yes, fair enough. But he had just (laughs) met her a few days prior. And I was like, what about me? And he was like, oh, no, I don't believe in that. We're not getting married. And like, we were having this conversation for the first time. In front of like 10 people. All my friends on vacation in New Orleans, and it was just, it was a lot for me. And Jamie kind of lost it, and I felt really bad. Um, I was being, I don't know, as I purposefully sometimes do, being a little provocative uh, after I've had a couple drinks. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as it turns out, many years later, I uh, decided that for all the faults of, uh, you know, the legalized partnership under capitalism that is marriage, and there are many, many faults to that, if I was going to do it, uh, it might as well be with the most lovely, amazing, smart, brilliant, sweet person I've ever met and that I'm willing to put up with all the uh, shackles and violent chains of uh, bourgeois marriage in order to, I don't know, be around Jamie Peck some more. Oh, I don't know whether to cry or throw up right now. You guys do this Both. kind of shit every show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love parties. I love so Parties are good. And, and then I know people are like, yeah, yeah, so we'll do a wedding, but we won't, we, you know, we won't involve the state. We won't. Yeah, and, I've and, seen that before. And, but yeah. then I'm also like, guys, don't be dumb. Ta- <laughs> tax benefits, like especially if one of you is foreign, like don't be dumb. Like if you're doing the performance of that, that like celebrating love, but also entering into like a, yeah, what is an archaic heterotypical relation? Economical. Like don't 
don't like don't not get your tax benefits like yeah. and so there's well, a reason that coercive state power works exa- and, also and i'm pretty sure and that and that uh my union provides i mean yeah my presence on this show as well as the majority report is completely subsidized by sean's union health insurance and i think that, which we wouldn't get without bourgeois marriage and, so, and i do think which all of which is to speak to the fact that whilst we're organizing and creating networks and loving each other and creating uh, ideas and imaginaries for better politics, we also have to navigate. Um, and we have to navigate the now and find joy in it too, which isn't the same thing as being like a class traitor or a rev traitor. And so, yeah, I mean... Gender traitor. A gender traitor. As so, if same-sex relationships so. are not also polluted by patriarchal dynamics in society. Right, and it's, and you know, um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, I guess I'm, uh, I've lived through in, in what, nine years of being in New York and being in the anarchist scene for much of it, like I've I've seen too much radical posturing uh, to bother with that. Um, which isn't to say um, that's giving up on new forms of relationality, but uh, I definitely think navigation and care and and a little bit of doing what you want. <laughs> yeah, word. We're we're all fans of doing what you want here at the Antifada and not overthink. I mean, it's possible to drive yourself crazy, and I you know often have overthinking these things like. Um, you know, the family unit, the nuclear family, uh, having kids, social reproduction, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things are done in service of capital. And in that way, you know, refusing to do it or refusing to have kids or whatever can be a form of resistance should you choose to do so. But, I mean, if you take that a little bit farther, everything we do to keep ourselves alive is also a form of social reproduction and is also done in service of capital. And... I can only speak for myself here, but I like being alive. <laughs> like, I like living my life, generally speaking. You know, it has its ups, its ups and downs. So, um, so you I think, love capitalism. <laughs> I'm not going to have. I'm not going to have kids or feed myself just to own the capitalist class. Like you could take that capital. <laughs> we could all just kill ourselves, and that there, Woo, there is it. like there is a movement. It's called Sad Girl. Uh, what's it called? It's called like the Sad Girl something in art. And a lot of it is about like passiveness, self-harm, just kind of lying down and dying as a form of resistance Oof. to capitalist patriarchy. And I'm sorry, but that sounds terrible go to punch, me. Go punch like, a Nazi in the face instead, please. Like do something more useful like, with your body. What, like, I get it. Like, I'm not going to tell you what to do with your body, but it's still, it's, it's not ever going to be enough for me. So as we move through our lives in this capitalist hell world, and think about how best we can resist. Um, it's it's impossible to live a life that is not in service of capital in some way, whether or not you get married, whether or not you have kids. So given those facts, like, yeah, it does drive me crazy that the things I do in my life, whether it's with my partner who I love, with my friends, with my job, which I also like, all of this is on some level exploitative. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't do what you want to do with your life. And like, furthermore, I think a point that I was trying to make in a lot of our wedding vows, a lot of the vows that I wrote, as well as um, what our awesome friend Kenton said in, uh, in his ceremony, his wonderful ceremony where he called our love praxis. I thought that was fucking cool as hell and probably inspired by bell hooks on some level because Kenton's a smart cookie. Um, I think there is a way, like I agree with Weigel, there is a way for love, whether it's romantic love or 
friend love or civic comradely love, for it to be a site of struggle and a mode of resistance, even as it is necessarily tied up in this whole system that we're all caught up in. I think it's got that revolutionary potential. And in addition to because it feels good, that's a fucking great reason to keep on doing it. So as we said many, many years back, when we were involved in occupations and other forms of bullshit, awesome, juvenile, insurrectionary shit, to the Soho loft, to the fuck fest, onwards and upwards, comrades, to a future horizon of freedom and lots of hot sex. Hell yeah. That's, and P.S. That would be our forthcoming $100 patron reward if you get an invitation to the uh, Soho Law Fuck Fest. <laughs> I did not agree to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't sell yourself short. No, we're a proletarian podcast, you know? We gotta make <laughs> it affordable. We'll do sliding scale. <laughs>